Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're continuing to our foundation series, uh, sorry, blueprint series, um, looking at chapter 3 from verse 8 through to verse 21. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall go forth, sorry, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So, for those of you who haven't been around for the last few weeks, um, we have been exploring Genesis 1-3. to So, of course, we've seen the world, the heavens and the earth uh, come into creation by God. Uh, We've seen uh, Adam uh, created, Eve then created... Uh, and then last week we heard Phil talk about the sin, the, the, the great fall where um, Adam and Eve ate of the apple of the tree that God said, do not eat. And now we get into the judgment. So thanks, Daniel, for giving me this one. Um, now, of course, no one likes judgments, but um, I think there's an awful lot to unpack from this morning. So um, let's uh, dive in to, uh, to Genesis 3. So my wife and I, we've recently moved. Uh, In fact, we moved about three weeks ago. And one of the things that um, we have the pleasure of now is looking over the the River Thames. And it is a gorgeous sight to behold. And we'll often go for walks um, up and down the Thames towards Richmond. um, And, you know, given the weather we've had recently, weather like today where the sun is shining, it might be a bit cold, but the sun is shining. It is a glorious view. And I've been busily trying to take photos on on my phone um, because, you know, I just want to share that with my friends and my family and say, look, look at this amazing place that we've, we've moved to. But however hard I try, I can't quite take the perfect photo. I can't quite capture what my eyes are seeing in front of me. It's almost like um, the phone is, is representing like a half truth, a distorted truth of the, the true beauty and the true magnificence of the River Thames and the leafy kind of area that we live in. And I think in terms of Genesis 3, I think sin in many ways is a bit like an iPhone. Sounds a bit odd. But I think it distorts our view of things. And so this morning what I want us to do is unpack 
the, the, of course, the, the cause of sin, but more importantly, the consequence of sin, and understand how it can distort our view of God, our view of each other, um, and our view, uh, our view of things like work. Why? For one simple reason. I think that if we can actually sort of get away from that distorted truth, if we can see clearly, then we can begin to grasp with all the saints, as it says in his word, uh, what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. So let's just quickly pray. Lord God, thank you, Lord, that we have your word to turn to. Lord, thank you that there is so much truth in it. Lord, we know that we, we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face, Lord, that right now we see just a, a mere reflection, uh, a, 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 a distorted, imperfect view, but one day we will see you in your full glory. So Lord, I just pray that this morning you help us to see you, to see your love, to see your glory, to see your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there's four points I want to unpack this morning. Um, and they all start in the same way, sin distorting something. So number one, sin distorts our view of God. Sin distorts our view of God. So as we dive into the passage, what do we see? We see God walking into the garden um, and he calling out uh, to, to Adam and Eve, where are you? Um, and they said, we're hiding because we're afraid, we're naked. Now you've got to love it when God asks a question. Okay, this is the all-seeing, almighty, all-powerful God who knows everything that's ever been and ever will be, and yet he asks, where are you? Why? It's kind of an odd thing to ask, right? And the only thing I could kind of compare it to, and I think parents in the room, you might you know, relate to this, you know when you walk in on a child and they're doing something particularly naughty or stupid, you know, they're playing in the mud or they're drawing on the walls or they're eating I don't know, laundry detergent or something like that, what is the first thing we ask them? What are you doing? What are you doing? We ask them a question. What are you doing? And yet, that's a bit crazy when you think about it, because we know exactly what they're doing, because we can see them doing it. And so here in the, in the passage, we see God asking this question, where are you? But why is he asking? Before we answer that, let me just ask you a quick question. How many of you have ever felt guilt or shame? Right. We all have at some time or other, right? Let me ask you a second question. How many of you have dodged a question or avoided a conversation because you felt a bit of guilt and a bit of shame? Right, okay, I think we all have. And the truth is, it is hard to confess our sins. And often we hide from each other, we kind of dodge questions, we avoid truths, um, and we can even hide from our loved ones as we saw Adam and Eve doing last week. And here's the crazy thing, I think sometimes we even try and hide from God. But of course, it's naive because God already knows. Repentance can be hard. I think it's one of those things that if we kind of admit our sins, we kind of like, they become a little bit more real, but we're fooling ourselves. And of course, here in the passage, Adam is dodging God's question. Where are you? What does he respond? He says, I was afraid because I was naked. No, he wasn't. I'm sorry, but he is afraid because he just disobeyed God. It's got nothing to do with the fact he's naked. That's just dodging the question. I think the simple answer to this is, is that he remembered God is holy, he remembered God is righteous, and he remembered God is a judge, but he forgot that God is love. And God isn't just loving, God is love. Literally, 1 John 4 tells us that. God is love, it's in black and white, it's clear as day. You know, when I was 16 or 17, I, to my shame, um, walked away from church. 
And, and the truth of the matter is, the reason I did that is because I was sick and tired of feeling, feeling guilty all the time. I realized that my view of God had become very legalistic. In other words, I, I felt like I had to earn God's love. I couldn't have been further from the truth. But because of that, I actually ended up hiding, like Adam and Eve are doing here. I ran away in shame because I just didn't feel worthy enough. I was sick and tired of feeling shame and guilt. Of course, I figured that out far later on in life. Um, thankfully, God brought me back to, to him. Um, but here's the truth. Sin distorts our view of God. I remember God as judge, but not God as love. And when you think about God, who is he in your mind? What, what, what kind of you know, images do you, do you think about? Now, I think sometimes we can think about love and judge at odds with each other, but they're not. And in fact, when we think about God's character, we should, we should seek the truth. We should seek to understand who he, who he represents himself as in his word. And it actually says this in, in the passage we've just read. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Which bit of that sounds like God is in a rush? Which bit of that sounds like God is angry? Right? He's not. He knew full well what they had just done. He, they had taken from the, uh, from the tree which he had commanded them, do not eat of the tree. They'd just eaten it. They are now hiding from him because they're terrified as I would be. But he's not in a rush. He's not angry with them. He's coming towards them. I think if they truly grasped the love of God, if sin hadn't distorted their view of him, they'd have heard not the heavy steps of an angry judge, but the kind and gentle approach of a loving father. So why do you ask this question, where are you? Well, I think he's doing it out of grace, out of mercy, out of kindness. He knows what they've just done. He knows where they're hiding. And he's just offering them a hand. He's saying, where are you? In fact, in Romans 2.4, it says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, perhaps there's a certain sin in your past. Perhaps there's ongoing sin in your life, perhaps you know, not time, enough time spent with God or whatever it is, perhaps you just don't think right now you're good enough for God's love. Let me just tell you something right now. That is a lie. That is an utter lie. God loves you, full stop. And here's the thing. God is never surprised by our sin. He is not surprised by what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, at the start of Genesis 3. He knows what we've done wrong. He knows how broken we are. But in that is the truest expression of his love. To be known for all our flaws and yet still be loved. To be known for the broken creatures that we are and yet still be worth dying for. Now that is love. Okay, my second point is sin distorts our view of sin. Sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Um, How many of you think you're good people? I do, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's nice to think that, but um, let's, just, let's just look at how um, Adam and Eve responds to God when he asks this question. Uh, and again, asking question, who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And uh, Adam says, that woman, that woman you gave me, she made me eat it, it's her fault. Now what does the woman do? She blames the snake. It's that snake, that slippery snake. Of course, we know the serpent we're told later on in, in the Bible is, is Satan. The truth is we love to pass the buck on to others. We love to blame other people. We love to say it's not our fault, it's always someone else's. And actually, 
the, the thing I just want to call out here is how everyday this is for us. You know, we often don't think about it in these terms, but for example, let me just give you one. Sorry I was late, it's traffic. Well, I'm not saying that's sin, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm just simply saying look how many times and how everyday it is for us to pass the buck, for us to pass the blame for our current situation. Right? We're just very good at it, it's part of our, part of our mantra. No, I'm sorry I was moody. It wasn't my fault though, it was my boss's. I'm sorry I'm you know, not feeling generous this month. It's the tax man's fault. Mark Say has written a book called um, The Vertical Self. And he explains in that book that often when we blame our circumstances, when we blame the horizontal, we're actually inadvertently blaming the vertical. We're blaming God. And that's what Adam is doing here. The woman whom you gave to be with me, whom you, God, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Mate, that's your wife. Like, what are you doing to pass in the buck? Oh, it's Claire's fault, Claire's fault, but not my fault. Like, of course, there is an endemic in society. The whole of society loves to blame others. That's woke culture for you. I know climate change isn't our fault, it's greedy corporations. Social injustice isn't our fault, it's the governments. And at the same time, we seem to think that science or democracy or the rule of law can replace what only God can actually do. You know, we think we're better than we are and we think we have all the answers. But let's just look at some stats and let's see if this world that we think is now better because of our diplomacy, because of our democracy, because of science, let's see if it's actually better. A couple of stats for you. Number of slaves in the world right now, 40 million. Okay, that is four times as many than in the 400 years in which slavery was legalized in the West. Four times as many, it's one in 200 people. One in four of them are estimated to be children. In the last 3,400 years, the world has known 8% of that time as peace. There are currently around about 50 ongoing conflicts in the world. In the last 120 years, 80 million people have died because of war. We're not better than we were three and a half thousand years ago because we are not the answer to this problem. And it's funny how we often talk about evil in the world and we kind of go, you know, evil out there. Well, I'm not quite sure where out there is. I'm sure out there is a nice place. Um, but, you know, we, we refer to this evil and this sin as out there. But in Genesis 3, we're told that actually we are the, the reason for sin entering the world. And, and it's because of that that we have these judgments on our lives. We're the cause. Now, I know that that can be hard to accept. And of course, as Christians, and, and for those of you who are looking in for the first time, this is actually often the, the, this is the first step to salvation, recognizing that we're sinful, recognizing that we need a savior. Um, but I'm sure, you know, some of us might be thinking, yeah, but I don't start wars. I don't, you know, hold people against their will. Well, let me tell you this. I might not start wars, but I certainly start conflict. Just ask my wife. I still get angry. I can still put my needs above hers. I can still be selfish. I love Claire two bits. I love you. But I love her imperfectly. And I always will. You know, we remember God is love, but we forget that God is a holy and righteous judge. And therefore we downplay just how rotten we are. So on the one hand, we don't think we're loved enough, but on the other hand, we don't think we're actually rotten enough. Jackie Hill Perry says, repentance should fuel our days because sin does. And here's the thing, sin distorts our view of, our view of sin. But here's, here's the key thing I want us to take away from that. 
If we can understand just how lost we really are, then it makes being found all the more beautiful. If we recognize just how broken we are, then it makes needing a savior who completely wipes away every sin and completely hides us in himself, it makes it more glorious, it makes it more beautiful. Number three, sin distorts our view of work. So I'm actually going to tackle the judgments backwards. So I'm going to start with Adam, then I'm going to look at Eve, and then we're going to look at the serpent. Um, And you'll probably see why in just a bit. Um, But we see here, so God, what does God do? God, basically, basically, he takes away his blessing from the earth. He curses the ground. And what does that mean? It means that work now becomes hard. It means that by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We saw a few weeks back, Abdullah uh, taught on this, if you remember, that work actually existed before the fall. So it's not like because of the fall, work came into existence. What's interesting, actually, what I often forget is that work wasn't just around before the fall. It's actually part of God's eternal plan. It says in Isaiah 2.4, nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And Isaiah is actually prophesying about the coming of, of the Christ the second time. So after Christ comes again, we will still be working. Bit of a wake-up call for some of us, perhaps. Uh, Scary thought, scary thought, to be fair. Now, of course, work is an important part, and there's a reason why we all seek purpose, meaning in our careers, right? And it's because we actually are, we're made to work. But it's interesting that modern culture focuses so much on finding purpose. It focuses so much on finding value in your work. There's a great book by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. I use it all the time. Um, it looks at how brands should always start with a purpose, the reason for being, um, and then encourages their, their, their employees to kind of think in the same way. Now, there's a reason that we find meaning and it feels right in our work. But let's not forget, sin distorts our view of work. How? For this very simple reason. We've already been given a purpose in our work. And if we understand that, then we can stop trying to seek more meaning in our work because we already have a glorious purpose given to us by God because let's not forget, it is part of his eternal plan. So what is that? Well, I believe it's very simply to be an image bearer, to reflect and point back to God. Let's not forget, as uh, when you opened the word, you were talking about this. God worked for six days. He worked And then he rested for the seventh. And actually he continues to work because he continues to uphold the universe by the power of his word, we're told. And so God is a God who works. We don't often think of him in those terms, but he is. When we work, we are pointing back to our maker. We are simply being image bearers. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that work should not be fulfilling, that work should not be pleasurable. We should enjoy our work. But let's never make the mistake of thinking we need to find more purpose in our work than we've already been given by God. If you don't believe me about enjoying work, and if you hate your job, listen to this. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, find enjoyment in his work. And it says this, this also I saw is from the hand of God. So God delights in us, delighting in our work. We should find pleasure in our work. 
we should enjoy it. So if, you're, if you hate your job, think about that. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're in a place where you just don't think this is right for you, there is probably a good reason for it. But let's never take it beyond that and try and find more purpose than we've already been given. Uh, and finally, sin distorts our view of relationships. Now, I have to admit, this is, uh, I feel very underqualified to talk about uh, bearing, uh, childbearing in pain. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to apologize to all the ladies here. And so I'm very sorry that you have to go through this and that this is your judgment. Um, it does feel a little bit uh, unfair. Um, but it, it's, <laughs> there's not much I can do about it. So I'm just going to move on to um, uh, the key point I actually just want to pull out from this. It's interesting when we talk about the judgments, we often talk about two. We talk about work becoming hard for Adam, and we talk about women receiving pain in childbearing. What we don't talk about is the second part of that judgment. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, of course, we live in a society where relationships are treated quite cheaply. You know, we kind of disregard them, we, we throw them away when, we're not, when they're not working out. And I think a lot of it is, just comes down to this simple point. Why? Because I think that because of the fall, we've moved from a position where we love and cherish to we try to dominate and control. You know, it's like work. Work existed before the fall. Relationships existed before the fall. The only difference is they're now hard. Claire, I'm sure, will testify to that. <laughs> But sin distorts our view of relationships. So I just want to make one very simple point. I'm going to make it to the men first. I'm going to make it to the ladies. Men. Hi. Guess what? We're sinful. Guess what? We love, you know, hopefully for those who, who want to be in a relationship or will one day be in a relationship or are in a relationship, you will find this out pretty quickly, that you, you will love your wife, but you will love her imperfectly. Your natural inclination won't be to lead, it will be to dominate. We're told this, this is what this curse means. Now, it's important to note that we, we talk about dominion in Genesis, and dominion derives from the word uh, dominance or control. We are given, Adam and Eve are given dominion over the earth. What is Adam not given dominion over? Eve, ever. Okay, your natural inclination will be to control. But that is not the point. And here's the key. Our marriage should be an apologetic. It is showing the world what it is like for Christ to love his bride unconditionally, sacrificially. So next time you get into an argument, and I'm guilty of this myself all the time, <laughs> remind yourself your natural inclination will be to control and to dominate. And to the ladies, and I say this with much love, your natural inclination will be to counter your husband's will. Now, a lot of the time, that's going to be justified because men get it wrong a lot. I can vouch for that. I get it wrong all the time. But here's the key thing. If God gave you a husband that met every condition, that was right every time, we would never learn to love unconditionally. And again, our marriages, our relationships with each other are a reflection of Christ's love for the church. So let's not forget that our, our relationships with each other as a community and, and as husbands and wives and, and just friends, we are living out a devotional. We are living out a, a, a means of glorifying God, of pointing to him. So let's not forget that sin distorts our view of our relationships and that our natural inclination will not be to love and to cherish, but will be to control and to dominate. 
So the last curse is on the serpent. And as I said before, we're told later in the Bible that the serpent is, of course, Satan. Now, I've been on a few of these um, theology courses that, that Daniel's led uh, for regions beyond. And, and one of the kind of jokes that we have is if you're unsure of the answer, just say Jesus. It's kind of always the answer. So when we look at this, this passage where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If I just go with my kind of joke answer of Jesus, it's true because we're told by Jesus himself that the Old Testament simply points to Christ. So when he's saying here that when God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he's actually referencing Jesus. Because if you go back far enough, Jesus' foremother was Eve. Now the word bruise actually means to break. And as Christians, we believe that, God, that Jesus has already come and broken the head of the snake once and for all. He did in a tree what a tree couldn't. He, they don't, we no longer have to hide in the bushes. We no longer have to hide because of our guilt and our shame because Jesus has taken it away from us. He absorbs the judgment of God. He reveals the love of God. We no longer, longer, uh, sorry, we no longer need to hide uh, and run away in shame as I did as a 16-year-old. And now we can stand here, we can say, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? Because Jesus has taken it away from us. Through Adam, fear entered the world. Through Jesus, who we refer to as the second Adam, we have a love that casts out fear. Through Adam, pain and suffering entered the world. In Christ, we are restored. Through Adam, death entered the world. And in Christ, we conquer death. Our sin can no longer taint us. We are clean, we are righteous, we are made new in him. And of course, one day we are told that every tear will be wiped away. I just wanna end on this. There's two verses still to go, verse 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Chapter 3 in Genesis, I think, is a tricky one because ultimately we're talking about the judgments. And as I said before, it can be quite difficult to put love and judgments. We, we can kind of see them as at odds with each other. But even in God's judgments, there is mercy. Even in God's judgment, there is grace. And it's here. Even as God sends Adam and Eve out for disobeying him, for doing the one thing that he told them not to do. What does he do? He clothes them. And I think that that is a premonition of what Jesus does, which is close us in his righteousness. We become hidden in him. That's how it talks about it in the Bible. We are hidden in Christ. We no longer need to fear God as the angry judge, but we can look to him as the loving father because he sees us, he sees Christ. We're hidden in Christ, perfect, spotless, blameless. Right at the beginning of this morning, Abdullah read from Revelation. And John in Revelation cries. He's, he weeps because he sees no one as worthy to open the scroll. Well, guess what? We don't need to be worthy because we have one who is already worthy. One who lived a perfect and blameless life. And because of that life, we can now turn to him. Return to our Father, calling out Abba, Father. Love that. 
Perhaps um, this morning might have spoken to you, perhaps it's just another sermon. Perhaps you're carrying a weight of guilt, you're carrying a weight of shame, perhaps there's a particular sin um, that you have or haven't. But can I just ask you this morning, that there is something that is on your heart. If there is a source of shame, if there is a source of guilt, let go of it. Give it over to God today. It's not worth carrying around that baggage. We all do. It's natural. But you don't need to. You really don't need to.